0: Thanks for checking out the weekly sermon from Church of the Resurrection. We pray that God will use this message to speak to you and help you grow in your faith journey. We'd like to invite you to join us next week at one of our services, whether in live worship online at coreorg live or in person at one of our locations in the Kansas City area. Church of the Resurrection is one church in multiple locations. To learn more about our service times and ministries, please visit cora.org. We hope you enjoy this message.
1: I'm Cheryl Jefferson Bell. I serve as one of the pastors here at Resurrection. And as we continue in worship, I invite you to hear these words of scripture. Our passage today is from the Gospel of John. When evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the lake. They got into a boat and were crossing the lake to Capernaum. It was already getting dark and Jesus hadn't come to them yet. The water was getting rough because a strong wind was blowing. When the wind had driven them out for about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the water. He was approaching the boat and they were afraid. He said to them, I am, don't be afraid. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of scripture.
0: More than 3 billion people claim to follow Jesus. But aside from a few verses, how many actually know what he taught? In fact, much of what people think Jesus taught, he never said. Jesus' message is not only life-changing, but world-changing. Join us as we study words that change the world, the message of Jesus.
2: Today, we continue in our Lenten series focused on the words of Jesus, the words that changed the world, the message of Jesus, the words that changed the world. And we're going to turn to John's gospel. We've been focused on Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as we talked about the kingdom of God and this, you know, the most famous sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about Jesus' best known parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan and the parable of the prodigal son. Today, we're going to turn to John. And John doesn't include the parables. He doesn't include the Sermon on the Mount. He tells the story in a very different way. Uh, Jesus sounds very different in the gospel of John. He wants to make sure John is not trying to give you a reporter's account of the life of Jesus. He is going to try to get us to understand who is Jesus? What is his significance for our lives? If we trust in him and he wants us to trust in Christ, he wants us to believe in him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus says, come follow me. Do the things I'm teaching you to do. In John's gospel, The key thing that Jesus is asking people to do is trust in him. Trust me, believe in me, and then love your neighbor. So, these things are what, what Jesus, you know, lo- love one another, he says, as I have loved you. So, differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John's gospel. As we get to John's gospel, in, in place of the parables, what we find is Jesus is repeatedly saying these I am sayings, these I am statements. So, so sometimes he makes a really broad I am statement about, you know, he just says, I am. That's, that's basically a really odd way to describe yourself, but he says, I am. And then other places he has these statements, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, which we're going to focus on today. And so, as we look look at John's gospel, this becomes one of the main themes in John's gospel, this idea of who Jesus is and that he is the I am. Now, to understand why Jesus in John's gospel says, I am, and then says uh, at various places, I am, and then he adds a description to it, is, uh, is, it's really helpful to understand this if we go back 1,300 years before the time of Jesus to the time of Moses. Now, when we look at the time of Moses, uh, Moses, you'll remember, I'm not going to tell you his whole story, but I want to remind you when he's 80 years old, he's in the wilderness of the Sinai right? And he's tending his father-in-law's sheep. He's in essence a Bedouin. I want to show you where this story takes place, by the way. Uh, This is uh, up this path and up the hill is Mount Sinai. And here is uh, where the monastery is, that that is the traditional site of where Moses was when he saw the burning bush. Out here is where the children of Israel, after they were liberated from slavery, they are camped out and Moses is going up the mountain to receive the 10 commandments. Uh, We were there just uh, right before COVID with a group of about 200 of you from resurrection uh, and had a chance to experience this and hike up the mountain. In any case, Uh, Moses sees a bush that's burning. This is an odd sight. There's not very many many bushes out there, but there are a few and it's burning, but it isn't consumed by the flames. And so he goes over to the bush and he sees this bush burning and he hears a voice, the voice of God saying, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. And, And then God says to him, I need you, Moses, to go to Egypt. I need you to go back to Egypt. And I need you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go to release the Israelite slaves who were oppressed by the Egyptians. I need you to go do that. And Moses begins making excuses. I can't go do that. There's no way. I stutter and he starts making all kinds of excuses. And then one of the things he says is this. He says to God, speaking in this burning bush, he says, if I now come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they're gonna ask me, what's this God's name? There were thousands of gods in the Egyptian pantheon. What's this God's name who sent you? What am I supposed to say to them? And God replied, I am who I am. So say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Now, here the word I am is a Hebrew word. Aye is the word in, in this particular tense, but typically it's Yahweh, uh, Yahweh, and that's in the third person, in the first person, Aye. And, and what the word means is, I am, I exist, I am. And, and actually, it's a sort of cryptic word. Like, what kind of name is that for God? And it becomes the personal name for God, Yahweh. Sometimes you'll hear it mispronounced Jehovah, Yahweh. What kind of name is that for God? And yet, as you seek to understand you know, why God gives this name, and by the way, that name shows up 6,800 times in the Hebrew Bible. So over and over and over again, this is the name by which people call, you know, the Israelites call their God. His, God is a generic term, but Yahweh is his name. And more often than any other name, in fact, all the other names for God combined, we find Yahweh in scripture. Now, when you're reading the Old Testament, you won't find Yahweh in most translations. You'll find it, the Lord, and Lord in all caps. And when you see it in all caps, you know the word is Yahweh, the personal name for God. So why would God say, my name is I am? And and the best thoughts related to this that I have ever read, and I've spent a lot of time reading and studying this, and many scholars have spent a lot of time reading and studying this, but here's why I think God said his name was I am. I think he was saying, I am the source of existence itself. Everything that exists derives its existence from me. I sustain everything. I create everything. I sustain everything. Everything that exists, exists because I am. I am being itself. I am life itself and everything else is contingent upon me. I'm reminded of the apostle Paul, 1300 years later, he's speaking to the Greek philosophers in Athens. And and he's trying to describe who Yahweh is, who God is. And he quotes one of their own Greek poets. And he says, in him, we live and move and have our being. You may not realize it, you may not believe in God, but you exist because God exists. The entire cosmos exists because God wishes it to exist. And so our lives, our world, our, our cosmos is dependent upon God. We exist because God exists. Yahweh, I am that I am, or I am who I am. So I want to remind you here that John's gospel then is focused on helping us understand that in Jesus, God has somehow taken on flesh. It's a mystery, he doesn't explain it all. But remember, John's gospel starts with these words, in the beginning was the word, That is God's desire to reveal himself to us, to communicate himself to us. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and lived among us. He's saying from the very start, Jesus is is the essence of God poured into human flesh, come to us on this planet to show us who God is, what God's will is for our lives and who we are called to be. Now that's a theme that runs all the way through the gospel. The gospel. And, and so when we come to uh, how Jesus refers to himself at several points, three or four points through the gospel, maybe even five or six, uh, Jesus will say things that, that sometimes are missed in the English translations, but he will say, I am. He just, just there it is, it's just, I am. Like one example I'll give you is when uh, Jesus is, has sent his disciples, he's fed the multitudes, a passage we'll look at in more detail in a moment, John chapter six. He feeds the multitudes. Then he tells his disciples, you go on by boat. It's sunset. You go on by boat to the other side of the lake. I'll meet you over there. And he goes up to pray by himself. In the middle of the night, there's a storm that comes up and the, and the ship is, 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 you know, wrenching back and forth and, and, uh, and the disciples are terrified. They're going to drown. And Jesus comes walking on the water to them. And as he comes to the water, well, this is, this is how it's, uh, it's said in, uh, in John 6. He was approaching the boat and they were afraid. And he said to them, I am... Don't be afraid. What's God's name in the Hebrew Bible? I am that I am. Tell them I am since you. And here we find in John's Gospel chapter 6, I am, don't be afraid. I mean, that's a pretty dramatic claim. Somehow the I am, the, you know, existence itself being itself has been poured into human flesh in Jesus. Don't be afraid, I am. You're going to find by the way that story of the of the of, you know, Jesus walking in the water. That also, all these stories in John's gospel point to the fact that he is God's essential character, nature, God in the flesh. And so in, in uh, Psalm 77:19 19, and in Proverbs, I think, or not Proverbs, Job 9:8. in both those passages says that God alone walks on the water. And so Jesus has come walking in the water. If they didn't get that, he says, I am. Don't be afraid. There's another dramatic I am statement. It's in uh, John 18, four through six. You might just make a note of that, John 18, four through six, and go back and look at it later on when Jesus says once more, I am. Now, some translations, it'll simply say, it is I. That's an adequate translation. It doesn't get the point of John's gospel. go away me is the Greek here, and I am is what Jesus literally is saying. Now that leads us to the seven I am sayings of Jesus in the gospel. So he makes this dramatic statement, I am, and nothing after it four or five times. But then there are seven I am sayings of Jesus in the gospel. And so here he takes that same idea, I am, and then he is going to add something to that as a way of describing uh, who he is and the role that he plays or what he does in our lives when we put our trust in him. So this is what John wants you to get. And these these statements are meant to be unpacked. You're meant to you know dig into them, like the parables in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. In this case, these metaphors are meant to be unpacked for you to ask: In what way is Jesus, let's say, the bread of life? In what way is he the light of the world? In what way is is he the way, the truth, and the life? In what way is is he the good shepherd for me when I put my trust in him? In what way is he the sheep gate? In what way is he the resurrection and the life? In what way is he the true vine? Right, and you begin to unpack that. You begin to really dig into that because he's all of those things to you when you put your trust in him. This week we don't have time to cover all seven of those, but this week in your GPS, your daily grow, pray, and study guide, you're going to have a chance to read all seven of those "I am" sayings and to reflect upon them each day to really ponder, like, what does it mean if I put my trust in Jesus that he's going to be for me these things? We have time to focus on two, so we're going to talk about "I am the bread of life," and we're going to talk about "I am the light of the world." The first two. Of, the, uh, of these statements of who Jesus is. Now, John places these, these uh, I am sayings in the midst of a context, a particular context that's gonna help you understand the meaning. So here in John chapter six, Jesus and the disciples have been ministering to the multitudes, thousands upon thousands of people have come out to hear Jesus out in the country and Jesus has been ministering to them all day teaching them, maybe healing their sick. And it gets towards the end of the day and the disciples are wondering, how are we gonna feed these people, Jesus? Send them home because they've got to get something to eat and we don't have much to share with them. And of course, Jesus says, well, what do we have to share with them? And, and he finds out they have five barley loaves and two fish. And so Jesus tells the crowds to sit down and, uh, and the disciples have to be scratching their head. Like, what, what are you talking about? Yes, yeah, sit down, just have them all sit down. And then Jesus takes the bread, the barley loaves and he gives thanks for them. The Greek word here is eucharistes. And eucharistes, you might recognize that word. It means to give thanks, but you recognize it in our English word, eucharist. So Jesus gives thanks. That's what Eucharist means. It means giving thanks. So he gives thanks over the bread. He blesses it. He thanks, thanks God for it. And he breaks it. And then he begins to distribute it. He has the disciples distribute it. Five barley loaves, 5,000 men plus women and children, maybe 20,000 people. And by the time they're finished, all of them have been fed. And there are 12 basketfuls of crumbs left over, or you know, leftovers. And, uh, and this is pointing back to another story back in the Hebrew Bible, where Elisha in, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha, is uh, there's a hundred men who are there and there's a famine in the land and somebody gives him 20 barley loaves and, and it's not enough for a hundred people to, to really satisfy their needs, but, but he, he gives thanks and he gives that bread to them and, and their needs are met. Elisha, five loaves and, or excuse me, 20 loaves and a hundred people. Jesus, five barley loaves and 5,000 men plus women and children, maybe 20,000 people. And somehow he's miraculously fed them all and it's only after that. So, so then a day goes by that night, he sends the disciples out on the water to cross the lake. Jesus then comes walking to them on the water and says, I am. And then the next day, the crowds gather around him again and they say, Jesus, we've come to see you. And he says, I know why you came to see me. You came to see me so I could give you some more food. But you missed the point. And you can read this in John chapter six, you, you missed the point. The point of that, of what I did for you was to let you know that I am the source of life for you that I have come on behalf of my father to show you that real life is not found in just what you put in your belly, but there's something more. And then he makes this dramatic statement. He uh, He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. What's he talking about? Now, let me remind you, when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, and, and we don't find this in John's gospel, we find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When Jesus is being tempted by the devil, the devil comes to him and says, I know you're hungry, you've been fasting. Hey, why don't you take some of, this, uh, some of these stones and turn them into bread? And Jesus responds, humans don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. John starts his gospel, the word became flesh and lived among us. And Jesus is, is really making clear here, that we have needs that are not just for food for our bellies. There's something more. We call them existential needs. We have yearnings and longing, a need for love and to be loved, a need for for grace and mercy, a need for hope in the face of despair, a need for meaning and purpose in our lives. All of these things. And what Jesus is saying is, I am the bread for you. I I am showing you, I am am the source of life. And, and, And I'm not talking about bread to fill your belly. I'm talking about something so much more. I'm always reminded when we come to this, of of something that Abraham Maslow taught. You may remember Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. You learned this in high school uh, psychology. And he said, humans start with a very basic need for food, water, warmth, and rest. And until those needs are met, it's hard for them to think about anything more. But once those needs are met, they begin being concerned for safety and security. And once those needs are met, there's the need for belonging and to be loved by other people, to have friendships and relationships. And then the need for esteem, to, to have people think highly of you or think well of you. And then, and then he says, you know, near the top of this or at the top of this is self-actualization to become the you you were meant to be. And then later in life, Abraham Maslow said, and really at the top of that self-actualization are our spiritual needs. They're the need to connect with God. They're the need to become what God intended for us to be. It, it, it's now suddenly a move towards selflessness and to focus on others towards Agape. And that's the highest level of need that that Abraham Maslow believed we had. Jesus is saying, I've come to satisfy the deeper needs, the higher needs. I've come to be life for you and to help you find that life, right? This is what Jesus is teaching us here. By the way, the first time I ever preached on this text, it was, uh, I believe it was 1994, perhaps, 1995. And, uh, and at that time, I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to talk to a baker about what bread means and their, their thought about this. And there's a guy who just started up a new bakery in Kansas City. And by this time, he was in the Waldo area, a very small operation. It was called Farm to Market uh, Bakery. And they were providing bread for restaurants, I think, at the time. And then it continued to grow and grow and grow. Well, anyway, I met him in Waldo. And I asked him, we didn't have video at that time, but I just asked him, tell me what bread means in the history of humankind. And he began talking about, you know, and, and, how, and what it might mean that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he began talking about nourishment for our souls and, and bringing people together in community. And I, I thought to myself, he passed away a year ago, but his son is running the company now. And they have a much bigger operation. They bake about 3.6 million loaves of bread every year for restaurants and, and grocery stores in Kansas City. And, uh, and I went over to see him. And I just wanted to ask his son, Mark, or uh, his son, John. You know, John, tell me, I met, met your dad years ago and heard what he had to say. What do you think about this passage of scripture? And then I asked him to tell me about what they do with the bread that they don't sell. Take a listen.
0: Bread has always been a part of my life. My father actually one time had considered becoming a priest and and uh, uh, worked at a monastery in, in the summers for a couple of years. And so community was always important to him. So he would always bring up how bread uh, can bring people together.
2: The one tangible physical thing that Jesus gave us to remember him by is bread, Yeah. right? I mean, that's, you know, as you think about communion, what what comes to mind when you think about the Eucharist and bread? I I think of the wafers first, (laughs) but um,
0: uh, yeah, nourishment comes to top of mind. You know, I I think that he was talking about nourishing, you know, probably your soul, uh, uh, nourishing communities, um, through, uh, faith. You know, one, one of the, the downsides of not using artificial preservatives is, um, uh, the short shelf life of our bread. So we end up with a lot of extra bread that we're not able to sell, uh, quick enough. And, uh, we're fortunate enough to work with, um, uh, churches like the Church of the Resurrection and other food pantries and food kitchens to come and, uh, pick up our, our day old bread, um, to, uh, distribute to people in need.
2: This idea of nourishment for the soul, of community, of bringing people together, that's the essence of the Eucharist. And in John's gospel, he doesn't tell the story of Holy Communion and the Eucharist at the Last Supper, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. Instead, he tells it here in John chapter six. And he says, "You know, I am the bread of life. Those who eat of me will never go hungry. Those who drink from me will never thirst again. Later he says, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And he's referring to Holy Communion. This gospel was written decades after Jesus' death and resurrection about 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, maybe 60. And and by this time, Christians have been celebrating Holy Communion for all of this time. And what he's saying is, listen, we have a way of tangibly receiving Christ. And that is through the bread and wine of Holy Communion. And when we receive the bread and wine of Holy Communion, which we will do next weekend in worship, when we receive the bread and wine of Holy Communion, we are remembering that Christ is the bread of life for us, that he satisfies the deepest longing in our hearts. It's been said that we have a God-shaped hole in our hearts And it can only be filled by God that, that as Augustine said, you know, our hearts will always be restless until they find their rest in God. And so we live in a time where so many of us have so much. And yet, you know, the more we have, the more we find ourselves yearning for something else, something more. I think about Mick Jagger, you know, I can't get no satisfaction, but this is how we are when all of our other needs are met because there's something deeper that's meant to sustain us, to guide us, to give us love and life and hope and joy and peace. And we find that in Jesus Christ. And so John wants us to see in the I Am statements, here's what you receive if you put your trust in Jesus. Part of what you receive is the bread of life that satisfies your hungry heart with the finest of wheat. That's what Jesus is saying in John chapter six. And then I love the fact that... Uh, that part of what we do is we pray for that daily bread that will satisfy our hearts, but we also make sure that people who are hungry for their physical bread, those people who are down at the lower part of Abraham Maslow's chart, that we are responsible in part by people, as being people of faith to make sure they have enough to eat. And, and John, he mentioned, he hinted at the fact that you know, they, can't, they sell their bread within one day. It's good for several days, but they sell it within one day. And then whatever they don't sell, they give it away. Well, they gave away a half a million loaves of bread last year, including thousands to our food pantry at Resurrection Overland Park, because he knew that while he wants to provide for people's physical needs and and invite people to break bread together, there are people who don't have enough. And he finds his, his higher needs met by making sure other people's needs for bread are met. I wonder if you're hungry for something more than you can see and feel and touch. And I want to remind you that Jesus is the bread of life for you as well. And all you have to do is say yes. That leads me to one more of these I am statements of Jesus. So if you have your Bible, turn to to, um, John chapter 7, verse two. And there we're gonna find that Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, He's there for the Festival of Booths or the Festival Sukkot. And the Festival of Booths or Sukkot is a time when the Jewish people remember that they once were wandering in the wilderness. They were traveling or sojourning in the wilderness for 40 years. And during that period of time, they stayed in tents. Uh, they, they they lived in temporary housing, shelters. And so your Jewish friends at Sukkot will build a tabernacle or a, a, a tent in their backyard, a little lean-to, and they'll go out there and they might share a meal together. Some people actually sleep in it to remember that my ancestors lived in a tent in the wilderness of the Sinai for 40 years. And so uh, that's what the and by Jesus' day, this has been going on for 1,300 years. And Jesus goes to Jerusalem. This doesn't show up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only in John. He goes to Jerusalem and he goes to the temple. So John chapter 7 and chapter 8 are happening in and around the temple. And Jesus has come there to speak uh, to people to teach at the festival of Sukkot. Now, at Sukkot, in, the, uh, in this period of time, in the second temple period, uh, what would happen is in the, in the court of the women at the temple, they would erect giant lampstands. These were like menorah. They were 75 feet tall and there were four of them in the court of the, of the women. And these, they had bowls with about six gallons of oil in them And they would light them each night. And this light shining in the darkness at the temple reminded people of what happened in Exodus. We read this in Exodus 13, 21. The Lord went in front of them. This is while they were in the wilderness for 40 years. The Lord went in front of them. Yahweh went in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them along the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light so that they might travel by day and by night. You can see a picture of the temple here, an artist's rendering of the temple and the 75 and, uh, the foot tall uh, oil lamps that were lit around it. This is happening every night and Jesus is there. John tells us Jesus is there for this occasion. And it's there in, I'm supposing in the temple courts, in the court of the women, standing by one of these pillars that Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never live or walk in darkness. They will have the light of life. Darkness is such a rich metaphor in our lives. I wonder where you have lived or walked in darkness. 173 times in the Old Testament, we find darkness mentioned as a metaphor for the experiences that we have in life that are really hard. And it may be the death of a loved one, or it may be the loss of a job, or it may be a divorce, or it may be depression, or it may be anxiety, or it may be there's a thousand things it can be, but we all know what it's like to walk in darkness and how desperately we long for the light. And what Jesus is saying here is, I came for the human race that in your moments of darkness, you would know that I am with you all the time. I will be the light for you in your darkness. That's why he came. That's one of the reasons why he came is to be light for us and to illuminate our darkness. Scripture says the people who have lived and, and, and walked in darkness have seen a great light And of course, we remember in John's gospel, he says at the very beginning, he talks about the fact that light came into the world, into the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. When we put our trust in Jesus, he becomes the light in our lives. He illuminates our darkness. He helps us see what we couldn't see before. He helps us know no matter how dark things might be, darkness doesn't have the final word. This is who Jesus is and what he does in our lives. So I was working on this part of the sermon this week and I was reminded of a song that I used to play over and over again when I was a kid. I was in seventh grade, I had a record player and I had my dad's old record collection, or at least part of it. And uh, my favorite was Simon and Garfunkel. And my folks were going through divorce in seventh grade. They'd been separated, got back together again and then they decided they would divorce. It was a really dark time for my sister and me. I can't speak for her, but for me, you know, I remember just the, the thought, my dad wasn't going to be with us anymore. He was going to be living somewhere else and what, what life was going to be like and how would this happen? And, and, and just, just it was just hard as a seventh grade, as a kid. I was 12 years old, I think. And, and I remember I would go back and I would listen to this song over and over again by Simon and Garfunkel. It starts off with these words, hello, darkness, my old friend. Here's the first 35 seconds of it from 1965. Simon and Garfunkel, take a listen. Of I still love that song. It was recorded over and over again, covered by a lot of different bands in the 1990s, 1980s, and even in the 2000s. So the Trolls, a little Troll video, and you see the Trolls singing it. And, and of course, one of the best known today is by a, uh, really a heavy metal group called Disturbed. A very powerful song. For me, it just captured where I was feeling. I was walking in darkness, and the, and the melancholy tune of it captured what I was experiencing in life. Now, this week, while I was working on the sermon and watching this video, I began to think, well, I wonder why they started the song with Hello Darkness. And I don't know if, if the story I'm about to tell you is actually the reason why it starts with those words, but it is a powerful story about Art Garfunkel who sang the song. Paul Simon wrote it, Art Garfunkel sang it. Garfunkel's 81 years old today. But, but uh, Art, when he was in college at Columbia University, became his, he just, just started as a young kid, 18 years old, and he met a friend, um, and uh, Sandy was his name, Sandy Greenberg, and they became fast friends Somewhere during their first year of school, they said, "You know what? I'm your friend. Whatever you need, I'm here. I'm going to help you. I'm going to stand by you." They made this sort of promise to be each other's, you know, best friends and to care for each other. Here's a picture of Art and Sandy. Now, by their third year, they'd become fast friends. But something happened to Sandy. He was at a ball game, and, and something happened to his vision. He ended up at the doctor, and the doctor misdiagnosed the problem and gave a treatment, and ended up not long after that, Sandy became blind, permanently blind. And when this happened, he was devastated. He was literally walking in darkness, but emotionally and spiritually, he was walking in darkness. He dropped out of college at Columbia. He had big dreams of going to law school and all the things he was gonna accomplish, but now he's blind. What's he gonna do? And so he goes back to his parents' house in Buffalo, New York and Art Garfunkel catches a flight. He goes to Buffalo, New York and he says, you can't quit, you can't quit. You gotta come back, I need you, you gotta come back. I am going to be for, I'm going to do exactly what I promised. I'm going to be your friend. I will walk with you across campus. I will read to you the homework assignments. I'm going to help you finish school. You got to finish school. I need you. And Sandy went back to school because Art pled with him to go back. When they went back, you know, he did exactly what he said. He read to him. He would, he would, you know, walk across campus with him. He helped him in any way he could. And he was always there for him. Except one time, one time, Art took his friend Sandy and they went to Grand Central Station in New York. And once they were there, uh, Art said, "Hey, I'm sorry. I got to run. I-, I can't stay. I got to run," and he left his friend, his blind friend, there in Grand Central Station all by himself. And while he's there, you know, he's terrified. He can't see anything. He's running into people and tables and falling over. And, and you know you just can imagine the panic that seizes him during this time. And then he realizes, I just got to get back. I got to get back to Columbia University. Now he's at Grand Central Station and the trains are all around, but how does he find the right train? And, and eventually asking enough people, he gets on the right train. And man, he is mad at his friend, Art Garfunkel, who abandoned him in Grand Central Station. And he finally gets all the way back to Columbia University. He gets off the train and he's walking back to campus, trying to find his way in the darkness back to campus. And, and when he gets back to campus, he hears the voice of his friend, Art, who came up and said, I'm sorry, buddy, but I just wanted to make sure you could make it back okay by yourself. And Art had been there the whole time, followed him through the darkness, stumbling in the darkness in Grand Central Station, getting on the train, taking the train back, getting off the train. He was there the whole time. He wouldn't help him. He was watching over him to make sure he was going to be okay, but he knew he needed to figure out how to do this. And, And his friend Sandy said this at one point. He said, that moment was the spark that caused me to live a completely different life without fear, without doubt, for that, I am tremendously grateful to my friend. By the way, uh, Sandy went on to write a book uh, called Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And the reason why he called the book Hello Darkness was because uh, Sandy and Art had kind of nicknames for each other. And after he'd lost his eyesight, Art said, call me Darkness. And so from that point on, Art would show up and say, hey, it's Darkness here to help you with your homework. Hello Darkness, my old friend. Now Greenberg went on. Sandy went on to go to Harvard, get his master's degree, his his doctorate, his PhD at Oxford University. And while he was at Oxford, 1964, this is the year, he was at Oxford, and uh, and Art reached out to him, called him, and said, "Hey, buddy, uh, you know my old high school friend Paul Simon, a guitar player. Maybe you remember him? We've been writing songs, and you know we're we're ready to cut an album, but you know we're four hundred dollars short of being able to cut an album. Is there any chance, you know, you might have any money you could loan us?" And Sandy said, "You know, I had like four hundred and four dollars to my name." But I sent 400 bucks to, to my friend Art and they cut their very first album, which included a song called Sounds of Silence. What's the connection between that story and Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world? Why am I even telling you this? Well, two reasons. First of all, like Art was there with his friend in the darkness, even though Sandy couldn't see him, God is always walking with you in the darkness. Darkness isn't, is darkness to him. He's always walking with you and by your side. You may not realize you have to trust. You put your trust in him. I know, Lord, that you were here in the middle of my darkness in this this deep, dark time. I know you were by my side. You trust that. You continue to say that. You continue to pray that. You continue to sing. You show up in worship in those dark times because what you find is in the middle of singing and praying, you hear his voice and he's behind you the whole time. He doesn't cause the darkness, but he's going to walk with you through it. That's what Jesus is saying here. I came to be light for the world, for the entire world, and for you. And the second thing I wanna remind you is every year at Candlelight Christmas Eve, when we tell this story and we, and we light the Christ candle, you know, the room's completely dark and we light the Christ candle. At the end of that, uh, after we've lit the Christ candle, I remind you, I say, you know, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he said, now you be the light of the world. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Now you be the light of the world. A city set up on a hill that can't be hidden. Let your light so shine before others that they might see your good works and give glory to your father who's in heaven. And, and then, you know, we light our candles and we talked about this two weeks ago. Do we go out into the world to push back the darkness. That's exactly what Art was doing for his friend, Sandy. And, and it was reciprocated to him in what Sandy did for Art and Paul Simon in launching their career by giving them money to record their very first album. I just want to remind you that Christ has called us to be light for the world, right? We accept his light and we walk in his light And we find the darkness begins to dissipate in our lives. And then we let that light shine before others in our kindness, in our care, in our compassion. We let them know, you know, in the darkness, I'm here. I'm here. Every week, when the sermon comes to a conclusion, our goal is to have at least one way that you can respond to the message, something that you can do in response to what Jesus has said in the scriptures or what the gospels say or what the rest of the Bible has to say. This week, we had, we had something in mind. So last week, we talked to you about what we do in preschools here in Kansas City. We have nine partner elementary schools, four partner preschools. We, you know, we minister with thousands of kids here in Kansas City and provide food and, shelter, you know, and, and, uh, and bedding and, and, and rehab playgrounds. We have tutors and provide beds and food and all kinds of things we also care about kids who are living in other parts of the world where they live in extreme poverty, where their lives are even harder than the kids who are here in Kansas City. And so we try to balance those two things out. And, and, and we have partners in partner schools, some of which we have built. We built the schools. We provided financial resources to be able to pay for teacher salaries and other things. We have them in, in four different countries right now, in Uganda, South Africa, and Malawi, and in Honduras. I've been to three of those four countries, seen these schools that you have helped make possible. And it's pretty awesome to see what happens there. And you know, what, what we've done, we've had a program going on for a while where, where people can sponsor a child and for $39 a month, they're able to sponsor that child to be able to go to school so they have a future with hope, to be able to provide for their basic needs while they're in school. It's a pretty awesome thing. Levon and I were in Honduras several years ago. We had a chance to see these kids that were in need of sponsors. And we, we decided we were going to sponsor a group of kids every month, $39 a month, to be able to bless them and help them and help them have a future with hope. And that's going to be part of our invitation for you today. Here's a little video about our child sponsorship program in the developing world. Take a look. Opportunity defined is a set of circumstances that make it possible to do something. It can be hard to imagine not having an opportunity to provide something as fundamental as education. Yet so many around the world face this reality, including the many families and children attending our global partner schools. They simply cannot afford to send their children to school We are inviting you to close the opportunity gap for $39 a month. You can provide an opportunity for students to thrive through education by sponsoring a classroom in one of our partner schools in Honduras, Malawi, South Africa, and Uganda. And together we might imagine a world where all children have a future filled with hope. We had about 60 of you sign up to volunteer, or at least to find out more about volunteering with our preschools here in Kansas City. I'm thinking there are many more of you who might say, you know what, I'd love to sponsor a child at $39 a month in one of these schools. And you have a chance to go on a mission trip to actually meet these kids, to go and see these schools. I mean, we take people there, you know, almost every year. But I'd like to invite you to ask this question. In what way am I bringing light to other people in the world? How am I taking Christ's light? I mean, this is what Art did for Sandy. How am I doing this for somebody else? in the world, and this is one opportunity for you. You can go to cor.org slash next, and you can find out more, and you can sign up to say, I'd like to know that I'm making a difference in at least one kid's life somewhere in a developing country, and you will. You'll be light for them. So here's where I want to end. It's not just sponsoring a child somewhere else. It also has to do with in your daily life, watching to see where there are people who are walking in darkness. Every day, there are people around you If you get out of your house, there are going to be people around you who are walking in a dark place that day. Maybe a coworker, maybe some family member, maybe a neighbor, maybe somebody else that you meet. What does it look like to pay attention and to actually show up, right? Art went to Buffalo, New York to convince his friend to come back home. You know, he walked with him, you know, and helped him with his homework and all that kind of stuff. What does that look like for you? And I'll just give you three examples, actually about different pastors in our congregation this week. So, so pastors and one layperson. So there was a layperson who came, uh, stopped by the office this week. And when I saw her in the hallway, I stopped and said, hey, what's going on? I could tell she just felt a great intense burden for her friend. And her friend's husband is, has about two years left to live, we think, we're not certain. Uh, as he's battling cancer. And she said, you know, for the first time, they're always so strong. And for the first time they broke down, and were crying this week. And I just feel such a burden for them. And and I just thought if one of our pastors could stop by and just spend a little time with them and and pray with them, you know, this week. And, And that very day, one of our pastors went by at the end of the day and spent time with them to bless them and care for them. But you know, it wasn't the pastor so much that was most important. It was the fact that this woman had gone by. Her heart was moved with compassion and she saw a couple who were walking in a dark place. And she said, I've got to do something. Right. And then I heard about a man who, who had come to our church years ago, hadn't been here in a while, and, and, uh, but is, is being seen by hospice. And, you know, he's, he's uh, in an assisted living center, a, a skilled care center, and, uh, and approaching, you know, that final journey in death. And one of our pastors said, I want to go by and see this guy. And he went by to see him. And, and, and just to say, you know, he took the sermon from last week, he talked about the prodigal son, and he said, you know, no matter how far you've gone or what you've done, God still loves you and wants you. And, you know, in that room, he brought light into that dark place. And by the time he was finished, you know, prayed and anointed with this man and prayed for him. And and there was just a sense of light that had come into that room and that darkness. You don't have to be a pastor to do that. Anybody can do that, right? And and then I heard about a guy this week who drove Friday. He drove uh, out of his way, drove two and a half hours to go see a friend who was walking in a dark place. And uh, and he just knew he'd been talking with him and praying with him over the phone, but he just knew, I just got to go see him. And he packed up his stuff and traveled two and a half hours just to go hang out with his friend so that he might share some of the light that he was feeling with his friend who was walking in a dark place. Let me just ask you, what are you doing to take the light of Christ to other people? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And you see the darkness has no power when Christ is your light. So I'm gonna invite you to join me in prayer as we offer ourselves to Christ and receive once more the bread of life and offer ourselves as light for him. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you might help us to receive you, to put our trust in you, the great I am, to put our trust in you, who is the source of life itself, to take from you the bread of life. We pray that you would fill us, that you would satisfy the longings that we have in our souls and help us, oh Lord, to tangibly meet the needs of others who need literal bread. And God, you know that we have walked in dark places and some of us at this very moment are walking in darkness. Help us to trust in your light, to trust that you are there with us, even if we can't see you, even if we can't hear you, to trust that you walk by our side. Disperse the darkness in our lives, we pray. Fill us with your light and then help us to reflect your light to other people. Help us to pay attention and to see those walking in darkness that they might see and experience your light in your holy name. Amen.
0: Thank you for watching this week's sermon. We'd love for you to join us again for live worship online or in person. To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, please visit core.org. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.